This is the Mooncast. Welcome to the Mooncast. I don't want to waste any of your time. Let's just jump right into it. So today we're going to break down Polygon and zero knowledge proofs, right? So let's start with Polygon. So Polygon is basically put out a tweet that says it's the next technical proposal for the Polygon 2.0 is unveiled. So they are swapping their token acronym from Matic to Pol, and the upgraded token of the Polygon protocol, right, will be to- will be Pol. It won't be Matic anymore. So Pol is a next gen generation native token designed to secure a line and to grow the Polygon ecosystem, right? And now when we break down and look into the white paper, right? So it says the vision behind Polygon as the valuator of the internet is to usher a world in which the value can be created and exchanged freely and globally, right? Similarly to how we create and exchange information today, a world which enables new, fairer, more inclusive, and more efficient forms of human organizations and governance. We strongly believe that realizing this vision can significantly advance our society, right? In order to make this ambitious vision a reality, Polygon's infrastructure must improve. Specifically, it must become exponentially more scalable without sacrificing security and user experience to address a reimagined protocol architecture is being introduced as part of the polygon 2.0 effort this radical redesign turns polygon into a network zk powered l2 chain unified via a novel cross-chain coordination protocol the network can support a practically unlimited number of chains and cross-chain interactions can happen seamlessly and instantly without additional security or trust assumptions this design fully delivers a aforementioned requirement exponential scalability without sacrifice security and user experience so they're trying to introduce zk rollups and zero knowledge proofs right and so we'll, we'll get into zero knowledge proofs and break that down exactly what that is but just to give you guys a little bit of a wrap idea or a little bit of a gist it's just basically being able to complete an action without compromising any level of security or privacy like Monero and Secret Network and a few others uh, have sort of these kind of implementations. I I think it's not Secret Network. I'm sorry. I think it's Mina. Mina protocol has it. Secret Network does have some private privacy solutions, but they're not ZK roll up solutions per se, from my understanding. Don't quote me on that. But the point is just that that you're able to execute an action without having to give up certain privacy in conjunction with the action that's being taken place right so i just go down here the article is it basically breaks down sort of the the staking layer of ethereum and interoperable layer and then transitions into uh, super net chains right which will break down later the difference in between the super nets and the subnets, right? Of an AVAX, for instance, because uh, people were getting a little bit confused with the differences between that, right? So it basically the article continues to read. It says it goes on to say BTC. So BTC is a native token. Bitcoin is a protocol, and it's the first prominent native uh, token implementation, right? So the utility of Bitcoin is twofold, minor rewards and transaction fees. So scroll down here, you see one advantage of Bitcoin design is a deterministic, predictable supply, right? Normally tokens with deterministic supply are more attractive to holders and can capture value better than those with non-deterministic supply. So deterministic and non-deterministic, right? What does that mean? So deterministic means that the supply is fixed and the monetary policy is fixed. There's no changing it unless you get a insurmountable majority vote rule to change the monetary policy, right? Where a non-deterministic supply can be something that's like fluctuating where it's inflationary plus deflationary at the same time. Something like Ethereum, for instance, where there's more ETH getting minted, but as there's more transactions on the network, if the transactions 
surpass the amount of ETH getting minted, then it becomes deflationary, right? So that's basically what that is basically implying, just to try to break that down for you guys. So it goes on to basically say, we consider Bitcoin a legacy token design, and we argue its disadvantages are multifold. So the disadvantages that they say with Bitcoin is it is an unproductive asset. It does not give holders or any meaning, any meaningful role in the protocol, nor the incentives to perform such a role. I disagree with this, right? The reason I disagree with this is because of the fact that Bitcoin does have the ability now to do smart contracts on the layer two, and you can inscribe tokens at the base layer. They do have NFTs. They're starting to pop off on the Bitcoin base layer. They have stacks, they have liquid, and soon mint layer will be migrating over to as well as layer two solutions. They do and will have more DeFi solutions, right, to be able to compete with Ethereum. So I do disagree with this. In fact, I do believe that Bitcoin at base layer, yes, it is slow, but there is solutions like the Lightning Network where you can move your collateral over to Lightning Network and, 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 and create your own Lightning node or you can basically leverage someone else's lightning node to be able to open up a payment channel to transact with somebody else. So I kind of kind of describe it kind of like you have your savings account where you keep majority of your Bitcoin in cold storage. And then you can take an allocated percentage into your checkings account where you can do day you can do day to day transactions, right? And when I believe the the idea of using USD or basically the the, the, the dom denomination of money changes, right? When the denomination of money changes into Satoshis and we're denominating everything with sats, well, there's 100 million sats in a that creates one Bitcoin, right? So within one Bitcoin is 100 million Satoshis, right? And I believe there will come a point in time where we will start paying like a coffee for one Satoshi or, or something like that. So I think people who have just even 100,000 Satoshis will will ha will be have a significant amount of bitcoin you know and if you have even just half a bitcoin i mean that'd be 50 million satoshi so when i think the denomination switches i think that's when we'll see um the enlightening network does a good job of that of being able to pay in sats as opposed to paying in bitcoin so you're not paying in point zero 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 two or one bitcoin or whatever for that coffee you're paying you know, one Satoshi or three Satoshis or whatever, and it simplifies everything and the, and the fees are extremely, extremely cheap. So I do disagree, but the white paper goes on to read, it says it does not leverage the opportunity to require stake in the native token for protocol validators and instead requires them to stake, invest external resources, mining equipment and electricity thus making the protocol less resilient and self-sustainable. I disagree with this too as well because the fact is that they make it harder for you to be able to mine. So the mining difficulty goes up as the value in the network effect gets more. And I think this is a suitable way so that it keeps the barrier of entry quite higher as the asset appreciation of the underlying asset increases over the course of time but that's just my assumption of the thing right so when we also look at this article it says it gradually reduces emission for mining rewards until it reaches zero which introduces sustainability and security concerns it is unclear if the security can be maintained once the emission rate comes low reaches zero see it's this is the thing right so the last bitcoin will be minted in 2140 right and what people don't understand is the idea is that the asset will be globally adopted to a more or lesser degree to the point where people are transacting day to day and the transaction fees is what the miners will collect from and that will subsidize them to keep the network efficient and secure and continue to run outside of the fact that there's no more emissions. So when you have a global network sovereign state that's running and commanding billions of transactions per day that's more than enough subsidy for the miners who are no longer getting the emissions so again i disagree with that it's a little bit biased of a white paper about bitcoin but anyways it goes on to talk about it says it does not introduce any type of economic support to the 
ecosystem, which is again, not true because as I just told you, there is a lot of things happening on the Bitcoin blockchain and soon it will be able to stand alone and be another competitor to ETH. I actually have an interesting theory on a previous podcast where I talk about Alex Labs and Stacks and Layer 2s. And I do believe that Bitcoin summer will happen or Bitcoin DeFi summer will happen. And it kind of already has, but I'm saying that it's going to really pop off. There's going to be, I think, some hidden gems in there. And people just haven't realized the potential yet that you can just port your collateral over to Layer 2 and play. Similar to ETH and the Polygon relationship, same with Stacks and Bitcoin. There's also Sovereign too as well, which I um, forgot to mention. So let's continue on. This, this white paper also says that it does not give any governance rights to holders. Although it can be argued that the Layer 1 protocol such as Bitcoin should not utilize tokens for governance. Yeah, it shouldn't. I mean, it shouldn't at all. And there's different ways in which the Bitcoin network, like you're able to participate in the network. Not one side, basically not one solution fits, fits everything, you know, like in the the context of, you know, that's why you have proof of stake protocols, you have proof of work protocols, they serve different purposes, right? And Bitcoin is not willing to compromise its security, you know, for the sake of being able to have some kind of technological advancement that's kind of nuanced, right? It's just not willing to do that. And it's still able to add on and add on layers and be able to perform and add decentralized solutions as well and in decentralized decentralized apps and decentralized finance and all these different types of things are able to happen on the Bitcoin network. It's just happening a lot slower in my opinion. So I don't mean, mean to be a contrarian with Polygon here, but I totally kind of disagree with a lot of the things that they're saying here in the white paper. But anyways, as we scroll on, they talk about ETH. So I'm sure there's going to be some bias here, but let's just go ahead and read what they say. So it says ETH is a, is a native token of Ethereum protocol and ecosystem. With its innovative design, it established the next generation of native protocol tokens, right? says the utility of ETH is multifold, validators staking, right? So it's proof of stake now, as you guys know, they transitioned with their one of their latest hard forks, right? They transitioned from proof of work to proof of stake. And the protocol requires validators to stake ETH in order to join the validator pool, right? So validator rewards, so protocol emits ETH and distributes it to protocol validators, right? Transaction fees, users pay fees in ETH, for every transaction, as you guys know, the Ethereum fees are extremely, extremely high. And um, yeah, so that's something to keep in mind. That's why a lot of people are transit transferring to layer two or transferring all their assets. It's, it's kind of unusable at layer one, especially if you're if you're a retail investor, it's ETH is pretty much unusable at layer one. I mean, it's you can't really use it at layer one. It's you have to go to layer two, right? And this is another thing too. Polygon, yes, it's the runner-up right now, or it's the the first mover in terms of layer two scaling solutions for Ethereum. But there are other ones that you know, like Optimism and Arbitrum, and other ones too as well. That uh, we'll we'll see what happens, you know, in regards to the layer two battle with for ETH, or maybe there'll just be multiple layer twos and. Maybe they'll transfer into having their, they become application specific chains later on. But right now they all kind of serve the same purpose of DeFi applications and um, uh, decentralized applications, you know, uh, on, built on top of the layer two. So yeah, uh, Polygon does have competition, but they are right now the first mover in that regard. And it says here, the, the white paper goes on to read, it says the design of ETH has multiple advantages right so it says it is a productive asset its holders can participate in securing the network and they receive incentives for doing that and yeah i mean i guess this 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 is true that you don't receive incentives for holding bitcoin per se as a holder but you are indirectly incentivized by being able to protect your wealth right it's almost basically a guarantee that if you buy Bitcoin at any point in time, you just wait four years, the value that you bought it at will be much higher than the value 
then the value wait so the value that you bought it at will be much higher you know in the future basically is what i'm trying to say so that's that's very very important to understand about bitcoin so it says also too it says it this descent uh, it says it desensitizes um malicious behavior of validators via in protocol slashing right so destroying tokens of malicious validators right I'm not a big fan of flat of slashing. I know Dot also has the same sort of implementation as well in regards to slashing. But, you know, uh, yeah, I'm just not a big fan of that. You know, I, I don't think that you should slash rewards. Rather, just they, the validator doesn't just get rewards. I think that's a better solution. But anyways, it does. It also goes on to say it does not introduce security and sustainability concerns. I mean, security concerns. I mean, I remember back in the day, uh, I think people transacted on ETH, and I remember ETH was able to regurgitate back the transaction that they tra- that they transacted. So that's a security concern when a blockchain it's supposed to be self-sovereign and decentralized is able to refute transactions that are happening on chain. So I'm not trying to you know spread any fud or anything like that. I'm just saying that. It's something to keep in mind when considering ETH as a security, like more secure than Bitcoin or any security issues, you know, and sustainability. I mean, when you're constantly changing the monetary policy, I have uh, sustainability concerns too as well. You know, you say that it's, it's a sustainable metric or sustainable um, self-sovereign network operating system, but is it really you know, you're constantly changing the, the monetary policy and, um, you know, it's it's it can't be advantageous. You know, it's not consistent. This is the problem that we have in the fiat system, right? When the monetary policy is constantly changing. Um, and that's what separates Bitcoin from the cryptocurrency landscape because I feel like it's still different because Bitcoin, the monetary policy doesn't change. It's constant. So anyways... It says it does not, and then it says, uh, the white paper goes on to read, it says, given that it does not have supply cap like BTC, and that makes it more secure and sustainable, whatever. Anyways, it it goes on to read, it says, it provides economic support to ecosystem via a predetermined portion of the initial supply allocated to stewarding foundation. Okay, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know. It says one potential disadvantage of ETH design is that it does not have a fully predictable supply, which is kind of what I said. And given that the token emission for validator rewards increases as more tokens get staked. However, this is successfully countered by the built-in mechanism that burns a portion of every transaction fee, thus countering the impact of token emission for validator rewards. Another disadvantage is that the aforementioned eco- economic support cannot last indefinitely. The initial token allocation to stewarding foundation will eventually get depleted, right? Because the emissions eventually runs out. Lastly, it does not does, uh, it does not assign any government's right to token holders. Although, as mentioned above, it can be argued that layer one protocol should not utilize tokens for governance. It is a good valid argument, but mm, to each their own, you know, in the article or this white paper goes on to talk about the Cosmos, which is the one of the protocols that I'm invested in. I really, really believe in Cosmos. I really like their interoperability solution. So let's just look at this. And let's see how this article or this white paper is going to try to, for lack of a better term, shit on Cosmos. But let's see. It says, Atom is a native token for the Cosmos Hub, the intended central blockchain of the Cosmos multi-chain ecosystem. It has multifold utility, but only within the Cosmos Hub, right? It talks about validators, staking, Validated rewards, transaction fees, uh, governance, and it says the design of Atom has the following advantages. So the advantages is it is a productive asset, right? It says its holders can participate in securing Cosmos Hub and receive incentives for doing that. It does not introduce security and sustainable sustainability concerns given that it does not doesn't have a supply cap. So this is the argument, right? Should should these sovereign network operating systems have supply caps or not? It's it's one of those hard things for me because yes, Adam has sort of like this infinite emissions and the emissions will slow down a lot. 
over the course of time. But as of now, the as of now, the emissions of the cosmos is basically counting infinite, right? So when we look at the cosmos, yes, it's true that they do have an infinite supply for now, but that is subject to change and it is one of those topics that is very controversial in regards to infinite supply or not infinite supply. I'm on the fence that I believe that you can maybe do a combination of the two, but I think the best thing to do is have a supply cap and hope that the, the sovereign state gets big enough to the point where the validators can get subsidized enough from the transactions on the network, right? So that's what I think. But to each their own, everyone thinks something different. And it really depends on your ideology and how you how you perceive it, because no one really knows what the future is going to hold in like, you know, the next 50 to 100 years. But all we do is make guesstimates of how we think it can work. There's also all these different other determining factors like quantum computing which we don't know if it's gonna be able to command 51% of a sovereign network state you know with the quantum computers and how sophisticated they could become you know within the next 20 30 40 years as that's getting developed too as well and no one's really talking about that so much but that's another thing to keep in mind too as well but anyways, this white paper goes on to say that Cosmos, it, it provides an economic support to the ecosystem via a predetermined allocation to a stewarding foundation, which is the, 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 the is basically like a pool where they can, they can vote to allocate where the funds from the pool go to, maybe to help with ecosystem liquidity bootstrapping or whatever it is right to upgrade the system or whatever it is right so that's basically what that is when it's when it's talking about that and it also says it gives holders governance rights via a comprehensive governance model right so cosmos is for me i think has the best governance model in crypto and they've had it for a while now where it's very sim simple to be able to vote on things going on in the cosmos ecosystem the one thing i would say though it's very you have to keep up with it you know you have to check it all the time and I missed a lot of votes, and but they do offer stake drops, right, and airdrops for things like voting and participating in governance and all these different types of things, right? So it is very interesting. It is a very robust ecosystem, something that you really, really pay attention to, especially moving forward towards the next bull run. I think they're going to do really, really well, to be honest. They, they, they basically, for me, have the best solution and the best marketing and the easiest user interface and you know for for retail to be able to navigate through comparatively to other chains i, I prefer kepler wallet over metamask i think metamask is terrible but yeah anyways the talk about the disadvantages of cosmos right so they say of course they're going to try to this they said that it, it only has utility within the cosmos hub right it is not used to run and secure other chains in the ecosystem, although there are initiatives to enable this. Yes, this is true. They're upgrading that, right? It says it facilitates a token-only governance model which excludes other relevant stakeholders of the ecosystem, developers, prominent contributors, applications from decision-making. Yeah, this is, this is somewhat true, but not really because... Um, I think they're going to integrate this with the next upgrade that they're having. So I, I, I don't agree with this at all. But anyways, let's continue. Let's continue. It says, it says that it also says that economic support it facilitates cannot last indefinitely since the token treasury will eventually get depleted. But I mean, it's the same problem with most sovereign network states, right? Like Ethereum, any, any smart contract protocol, they all have this issue, right? Any smart contract protocol. The only one that doesn't really have the issue or won't have the issue in my, in my beliefs is that Bitcoin won't have this issue because I think that it will be so massively adopted that, as I said, the miners will be subsidized through the fees, the transaction fees that are happening when there's billions of transactions happening every day, then it won't really 
matter about the emissions or treasury and all the, well there's no treasury in bitcoin but it, the, the, that won't matter for bitcoin the other network sovereign sovereign operating networks i don't know about them to be honest with you i don't know if they're going to make it or not they talk about dot and you know let's just scroll down here and ave let's 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 scroll down here we don't need to talk about that it also talks about the design goals right of poll so this is kind of important for us that's kind of what we want to know so it says based on the analysis of the relevant work several major opportunities were pulled to benefit the polygon ecosystem were identified these opportunities are brought forward here as poll design goals right so it says economic security poll should help establish a highly centralized pool of validators that can run and secure any polygon chain right so they're trying to build basically similar to like the cosmos right they're trying to build a layer two and then also have sort of subnets which means that you can make your own blockchain and use polygon as a security layer which then uses eth as the, their security layer right and so it continues on talks about infinite scalability right so it says polygon should support exponential growth of the polygon ecosystem and eventually hyper bitcoinization right or hyper not bitcoinization i'm sorry hyper blockchainization interesting okay um oh, oh okay yeah i mean there is going to be hyper blockchainization i never heard this term before it's in, it's in parentheses so it's not a real term but i believe in hyper bitcoinization but they're talking about hyper blockchainization right so it says primarily it should enable the, the validator pool to scale to support thousands of, of polygon chains, right? So they're trying to do the same thing as like AVAX and Cosmos, basically where Cosmos is a little bit different because it's more of a layer zero. And I think AVAX is a layer zero too as well in that sense, right? There's no layer two on top of AVAX. So they also operate as layer zero too, where you can use you can choose to use their security layer or not, right? Same with Cosmos. You can choose to use a security layer or not. Um, and I don't even think that that possibility, is, it's not It's not yet, it's not yet been realized if that's a reality or not with the Cosmos, if you're able to be able to use the Cosmos hub as a security layer. I think that's coming, right? With uh, interchain, interchain security. So it hasn't yet arrived from my understanding, right? But it is coming, but I think with AVAX, you're able to do that with the subnets. So it helps so that you don't necessarily need your own validator sets. It's the whole point, right? Because what ends up happening, right? You don't want your own chain. You need to convince people to set up validators to support the network for your your chain. When well, well, Why would they do that? Why would they be incentivized to do that? Well, because they get a value exchange of tokens, but how do they know those tokens are gonna to be worth anything, right? So it's a risk for them to set it up, you know, pay the money or, or whatever for, let's say, a hosting service or whatever it is, if, if it's proof of stake, you know, and depending on the proof of stake, you know, sometimes you need extra equipment and stuff like that. Some proof of stake protocols is more barrier to entry, whereas Cardano, you, for instance, like a Cardano, you just need your a laptop and you can run the software just autonomously on a laptop but the problem with cardano is you need i think around 2 million ada or something like that to be able to start minting uh, blocks right on chain where so that's basically where you need to have really good marketing to get people to want to stake to your validator node and earn block rewards right so Whereas with Cosmos, I think there's a higher barrier entry in terms of the, the technical, uh, the, 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 the stuff that you need, the, the computational technical toolings and things that you need. There's more, of a, there's more of a barrier to entry in that regard, right? And I think it's the same with Polygon too as well, but I'm not entirely sure about the validator node requirements, but I know for sure with ETH it's like that too. So there is a more of a barrier when it comes to that. So. Let's move on to when we talk about the ecosystem support, right? So it, it basically talks about the being a global network in the making. Polygon will require ongoing ecosystem support for further development and growth. Pole, which is you know the rebrand for Matic, should help establish a self-sustaining funding mechanism for those activities. This funding vehicle should be governed by the Polygon community. So they haven't really disclose how they're going to do that 
And when we scroll down here, they talk about no friction. They talk about that blockchain networks often require both users and developers to hold stake or consume their native tokens in order to use the network. This causes friction and degrades user and developer experience. Polls should be designed in a way that does not introduce any friction. So I'm guessing that you're gonna you're gonna have a multi-token settlement implementation is what I'm guessing, right? So you'll be able to settle transactions in different tokens that are built on top of Polygon. And that's something that is where a lot of uh, blockchains are actually starting to try to solve this problem and also the fee determinism and all these different types of things. I know Cardano is trying to solve that. Um, I know that there is a project, what's the name of this project on Cosmos that's doing a lot of amazing things I can't think of their name currently right now, but ah, Kujira, Kujira, right? So Kujira, they've they've solved the fee determinism already. So you're able to settle transactions in multiple different tokens, right? And that's kind of the future, you know. The so, but another thing too is it's kind of dangerous to do that too as well, depending on how it's done, because it doesn't really matter if the validators are getting rewards from any of the, the settlement fee token that's being used, right? But if they're only getting rewards for if you're using the the settlement layer token, like for instance, a Cosmos or a Polygon or something like that, then you lose, right? Because you're not gonna be able to maximize or optimize your fees as a subsidy for validating the network. And you only be able to have to rely on basically the, the token emissions, which gradually won't be enough over the course of time, right? So this white paper goes on to talk about the community ownership. And it says that Polygon is envisioned as a decentralized network governed by its community, right? And it says assigning governance rights to poll holders can enable creation of effective governance models in which decision makers are directly incentivized to support proposals that are in the best interest of the Polygon ecosystem. They talk about the utility here. So polls a native token of Polygon and such represents the major tool for coordination and incentivization of the whole Polygon ecosystem. It has multi-fold utility, namely validator staking. It has validator rewards and community ownership, i.e. governance. So that's basically their multifold utility, but it's nothing really nuanced here. I mean, most ecosystems have these these types of things. I mean, so it's nothing really, really uh, innovative there. So talk about the validator staking. So this is Polygon validators are required to stake pool in order to join the validator pool. Now, this is what I wanna know. I wanna know how much pool needs to be staked to be able to validate blocks on the Polygon network. So maybe if we scroll down here, we can see, and it says, oh, it says the validation and its benefits of validators are further explained in, in Article 6.3, right? So yeah, when we scroll down more, we'll probably be able to see that. Let's talk about the validator rewards, the centralization the size of validator pool is critically important for security, resilience, and neutrality of the Polygon ecosystem. So just keep scrolling there, it talks about the governance, the supply, the initial supply, so it says initial supply of the poll is 10 billion tokens, right? So, and then it says the entirely the entirety of the initial supply should be dedicated for migration. Token swap from Matic to poll, this migration would need to make or to take place in order to for poll to succeed. Oh, sorry, excuse me. For poll to succeed, Matic has the native token of the Polygon ecosystem and is discussed in Article 8. So let's go down here, talk about the emissions a bit. It says the validator rewards incentivize, to incentivize validator onboarding and retention, polls should be continuously emitted at the predetermined rate and disturbed to validators as the base protocol reward, right? So it says we propose a yearly emission rate of 1% of the poll supply. For this purpose, the emission rate should, or it would not be, possible to change for the, uh, the initial the first 10 years right so it'll just be one more percent emission subsidy for the validated rewards so the rest is going to have to come on chain from transactions it says the emission rate would not be oh, i already read that and then it goes on to say and after that period the community can decide to decrease it in the 
arbitrary way via the governance framework, the emission rate can never be increased beyond 1%. So that's something that they've put in the stipulation that it can't even be increased for the validator. So it can only decrease depending on the votes, right? It's interesting for me because you would think that they would want to keep that kind of open just so, because the validators, depending on how much transaction going, we don't know if Polygon, if Arbitrum and Optimism and some of these other layer two ZK rolled ups, whatever, all these different types of things are launching on top of ETH, they're gonna be able to extract a lot of the transactional volume from Polygon, you know? And so that means that there's be less transactions for the, or transaction fees for the validators to collect to be able to subsidize their operation, right? So let's just scroll down, moving on uh, and talk about sufficient ecosystem support, right? And yeah, they talk about security via scarcity. So yeah, so we can just scroll down here. We don't need to talk about that right now. So the staking layer, so realize, realizing the vision of the value layer of the internet will eventually require the Polygon network to host billions of users and millions of Web3 applications, right? To enable this vast level of activity, hundreds of thousands of Polygon chains will be running in parallel, secured by tens of hundreds of thousands of validators in order to coordinate all Polygon chains and validators, right? So it goes on to talk about the staking layer is one of a kind programmable multi-chain coordinator protocol, right? By orchestrating polygon validators and chains, it enables unlimited scalability of the ecosystem. We'll see about that. We'll see about that. This sort of infinite scalability that everyone claims that it can achieve, but I just remember during the last bull run, none of the chains were scalable. They all froze up at a certain point. They, they just couldn't handle the transactional volume that was happening on chain. It didn't matter if it was BNB, Polygon, um, Cardano, Ethereum. Ethereum also didn't, not only were they slow, but they also had high gas fees. So they were slow and expensive, right? So, yeah, so we can continue to scroll. Uh, they talk about a little bit about Web3. You can see they talk about the design, implementation, and so on and so forth. And boom, 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 Polygon chains management so we won't get too much into that just wanted to kind of skim through this white paper to kind of show you guys basically what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it and so I'm trying to break it down in layman's terms for you guys to kind of understand it a little bit better from a more technical aspect right they talk about the protocol rewards it says as described above every active polygon validator is receiving base protocol rewards the total poll emission for the validator rewards is distributed to active validators proportionally to their poll staked. So depending on how much poll you stake, depends on how much rewards you'll get. And talks about the, the transaction fees. Validators are allowed to validate any number of poly, polygon chains. In return, these chains will normally award the entirety or, or portion of the transaction fees to the validators. Additional rewards, as mentioned above, the sum Polygon chains can choose to introduce additional rewards to attract more validators. These validators can be in any token, including but not limited to poll, stable coins, or native tokens of those polygon chains, right? So let's talk about the community treasury here. And so we'll just kind of skip this a bit. So it does talk about the community treasury is funded by predetermined emission of poll. The poll rate dedicated to this purpose is 1% per year. So or the approximate amount of 100 million poll in absolute terms and cannot be changed for 10 years. So the community treasury will get 1% emission too as well. So that's important to know. And then they talk about the Polygon funding proposals that they, they will have too as well for the community treasury, the consensus gathering, the process of making a decision on a specific PFP, right? So um, scroll down here, you can see the migration and talk a little bit about the migration, right, from Matic to Poll. And when you scroll down a bit more, they talk about the model, the design, right, and the hypothesis behind why they're switching to Poll. You know, the sufficient eco ecosystem securities, the sufficient validator incentives that they're having, 
and sufficient ecosystem support, right? And inputs as well. And they also go on to talk about the current growth trajectory. It says since the inception of 2020, the Polygon ecosystem has grown to thousands of applications and 3 million daily transactions, right? If this trend even remotely continues, the proposed growth scenarios seem realistic. So they do have growth scenarios for Polygon where if you look at this chart, it looks like they're projecting. Let me look here by 2033 to be doing around 25 million transactions per day. It appears so. So, so that's interesting. And to complement the aforementioned growth scenarios, we estimate the following inputs. The initial supply is 10 billion, as I already previously stated. The yearly emissions is 1%, right? The yearly emission is for the validator incentives, and it's also 1% for the community treasury. It's $5 average poll price during the 10 year period. So interesting. So it says 38 transactions per second on average per public blockchains comparable to current Polygon POS chain usage, 19 transactions per second on average per supernet, an estimate based on the requirements of the supernet projects. That's not that high if you look at it, right? I don't know if this is accurate, but 30, 38 transactions per second on average. I mean, am I reading that correctly? Okay, and I mean, I guess that's what, that's what that looks like, okay? Then it says the average transaction fee on the public chains is around one cents. And the average transaction fee for supernets is is a micro cent, right? So cent of a cent. And yeah, so it says it will cost around six thousand or it says six thousand dollars per year average running cost for the for the validator, right? So the validators need to make sure they're getting the ROI because six thousand dollars per year on average running cost for the validator, and this is equivalent current Polygon POS data gradually decreasing according to the modified versions of Moore's law, 50% decrease in three years. 15 validators on average per supernet. So, okay, interesting. Based on requirements and realistic needs to super supernet candidates. Okay, all right, interesting. Talk about the mythology here. We won't get too much into that. I'll just keep scrolling down here and read the conclusion, right? So it says conclusion, the vision behind Polygon is to build the value layer of the internet. To achieve this vision, the redesigned Polygon protocol architect introduces a novel, inf infinitely scalable and seamlessly interconnected network of layer two chains. In this paper, we introduced Pol, the proposed native token of Polygon, designed to secure, coordinate, and align the Polygon ecosystem and supercharge its growth. The proposed design and tokenomics of the Pol achieved the rig rigorous design goals that we defined, right? Okay, so yeah, it's pretty much it for the white paper, right? So when we go on to do we need to really uh, i think we can skip this for now let's let's go to let's go here let's talk a little bit about you know what that yeah let's, let's go ahead we can talk a little bit about the polygon supernets versus the avalanche supernets right and which ones are better so this article talks about, uh, it says, the past few months we witnessed a high growth rate in the popularity of blockchain protocols that promised better throughputs and higher scalability, right? Blah, blah, blah. So it says the rise of app chain platforms while the supernets and subnets have major differences. They address a common problem, the creation of app chain platforms, right? And so the app chains provide seamless user experience reduced fee variability, better transaction speeds, and network incentives, right? All these are not possible with monolithic or monolithic uh, blockchains, right? Uh, launching on an app chain is costly, highly risky, and requires knowledgeable developers, but it's easy and affordable with subnets and supernets. Moreover, builders must also solve the challenge of properly rewarding decentralized validator participation to ins ensure 
security, right? This is what I, I talk about, right? When you have these these subnets or you're, you're trying to launch a chain on top of, you know, a, a layer zero or a subnet or supernet in this sense, you know, you, you have the issue of having to find ways to incentivize your validators, right? It's very, very important because if they aren't incentivized properly, then there's no reason for them to secure the network, no reason to support to, or secure the network, then there's no way that your chain is going to be applicable and it's going to be obliged to really serious security risk over the course of time right when your the amount of values you have is a very few amount and it's not sustainable right so it talks about what is a polygon supernet so supernet encompasses two aspects within the polygon ecosystem a program that aids developers builders and entrepreneurs in launching their own app chains and resulting app chain right this program provides access to a professional set of validators, third-party services for implementation, design, and management, and tooling for seamless integration such as block explorers, wallets, and KYC providers. Not a huge fan of that, but I prefer zero-knowledge proofs. But anyways, the underlying technology that powers SuperNets is Polygon Edge, which is a compatible and extensive framework designed to for constructing Ethereum-compatible blockchains, right? So says benefits of super supernets, right? Supernet helps in limiting Polygon's edges challenges, which are shared below. So creating decentralized validator set from scratch is a complex process that impacts the network security and consumes bandwidth. Polygon Edge provides multiple solutions, which some which can sometimes be overwhelming for developers when choosing between various chain configure configurations, leading to confusion right supernets address these challenges by providing developers with a customizable environment enabling them to build projects while saving on costs consequently supernets enhance polygon scalability while maintaining decentralization and security so what is avalanche subnet so avalanche subnets are a dynamic group of validators and collaborate to each to achieve consensus on the state of blockchains, essentially serving as the infrastructure that enables app chains by providing shared validators, right? So subnets were introduced in May 2022. Subnets offer developers, builders, and entrepreneurs the flexibility to create fully customizable blockchains within the Avalanche ecosystem, allowing for extensive configuration options and minimal design constraints, right? Subnets allow businesses and developers to create blockchains within the build, or with the ability to customize the virtual machine used such as Ethereum virtual machine, Avalanche virtual machine, or any other virtual machine of their choice. Additionally, subnets support private blockchain options, enabling entrepreneurs to develop customized blockchains without tokens if their business models do not necessitate, necessitate them, right? So it's benefits of subnet. Subnets provide the option to Customize gas tokens, allowing users to utilize native tokens or multiple tokens to optimize gas uses, right? So again, it's giving you that multi-gas option, right? So you can choose different fees or yeah, fee determinism, right? Of how you want, if you want to use subnet token fees or if you want to use avalanche token fees, that, that's possible, right? So subnets may require validators to meet specific hardware requirements, right? So again, when I talk about with with avalanche and with cosmos is a little bit higher hardware requirements to ensure smooth function functioning of the application subnets offer privacy and regulatory compliance features to organizations right so it gives you the option if you want to do kyc or some kind of regulatory type of uh, system in place because of regulatory demands of your particular jurisdiction you can do that on the subnet so it gives you that full option and that ability to do so right and it talks about the differences between supernets and subnets so the purpose of subnet subnets divides larger network into smaller and more manageable subnet subnetworks, right? Whereas a supernet, which is a polygon, it connects various networks together to allow cross communication and interoperability. So it's more similar to Cosmos. Whereas the subnets, it's sort of it works a little bit different, you know, where it's not really interoperability of all the different subnets kind of working cohesively in one bigger umbrella, right? So when it talks about the scale, subnet operates on a smaller scale as it is created by dividing a larger network, right? Whereas super, supernets operates on a larger scale as it is a network of networks that 
can be composed of multiple networks or subnets. And then it says here, it says with subnets, a unique network address is assigned when it talks about the network address, whereas here it's created by combining various network addresses, right? Interesting. So security, so with the subnets, it says it improves the security of the network by dividing them into smaller segments, right? And here with the supernets, it says the network can face severe security issues as multiple networks are connected with each other, right? Management says subnets can easily manage, can be managed and configured separately. Supernets are not easily manageable as they require coordination and management of different networks. Interesting. So the conclusion, which is better, polygon supernets or subnets? So this article goes on to read. It says both subnets and supernets are solutions for scalability that facilitate rapid deployment or development of app chains by developers. However, they differ in various aspects, including consensus mechanisms, transactions per second, the number of validators and staking requirements. Avalanche utilizes the snowman proof of stake consensus protocol, which employs probabilistic consensus to enable scalability and infinite decentralization. On the other hand, Polygon employs an instant bull, an instant bull uh, Byzantine fault tolerance, right? The IBFT consensus protocol to achieve guaranteed consensus albeit at the expense of decentralization and permissionless participation is my problem with polygon right it is at the expense of decentralization and permissionless participation right but anyways it says as the adoption of blockchain technology continues to expand the these technologies are likely to become more widespread and indispensable for building decentralized applications right i'm a firm believer that interoperability is the future of the blockchain space and I think it's important to have chains be able to connect with one another, communicate one with one another seamlessly and making it easy for the end user and the retail consumer to do it in a way where, for instance, you're not using bridges and all these things, or maybe the bridges are already integrated in the back end and the user doesn't really see that. So we can just seamlessly swap BTC to ETH or ETH to uh, AVAX, you know, one to one. And that's something that I saw that stargate this is another project that i look into too as well is trying to facilitate too as well to try to solve this problem of being able to swap from chain to chain seamlessly and not have any issues so i am going to allocate soon capital to stargate i haven't yet but i will i plan on it before the bull run kicks off again and we'll just close off here with zero knowledge proofs and explain them in three examples right so in cryptography, zero-knowledge proofs let you convince me that you know something or have done something without revealing to me what this, what that secret thing was. It is one of the most powerful crypt, cryptographic tools that has been devised, right? So we won't get into so much of the, the history of zero-knowledge proofs. So it says zero-knowledge proofs must satisfy three properties. So this is important, right? Completeness. If the statement is true, an honest verifier will be convinced by an honest prover. Soundness. If the statement is false, no dishonest prover can convince the honest verifier. The proof systems are truthful and do not allow cheating. Right? So, and then talks about the zero knowledge. So it says, if the statement is true, no verifier learns anything other than the fact that the statement is true. Right? And so that's the point. You don't know anything about me. I don't need to know anything about you, but we know that the fact is true, right? That I am from, I don't know, said country or whatever, right? So interactive zero knowledge proofs require the prover and the verifier to engage in a back and forth dialogue in order to complete the proof. Non-interactive zero knowledge proofs are those in, the, in which the prover sends a signal message to the verifier who is then able to check the validity of the proof without any further communication from the prover. Exactly, right? So we're gonna skip all this stuff with the article and just get to some of the examples, right? One really good example is like, it's, it talks about, says the simplest way to prove that you have knowledge of something without giving it away can be shown with the often used where's Wally example, right? You and a friend want to find Wally. You have knowledge of where Wally is in the image, right? But your friend doesn't believe you. How do you prove to your friend that you know where Wally is without giving away his location, right? It says you take a massive piece of paper to cover up the entire image. Showing your, f 
friend the image of Wally through a cutout, you can prove that you really know Wally's location, right? Yet your friend will not gain knowledge of where Wally is since the exact coordinates of Wally relative to the image would still be unknown to him, right? So you're showing the image of where Wally actually is, but you're not giving the exact coordinates. And that's the point is you don't really need to know where I, I am exactly, but you just need to know that I am who I am. And that's sort of zero knowledge proofs, right? So in another example, in this proof of membership example, right? Another way to, to of thinking about zero knowledge proofs is with an example of locked safe. You meet someone you do not know, yet she claims to also be a member of the group you are part of. How can you know if you can trust her? Luckily, your group has a locked safe and only the members of your group know the secret combination code to gain access to the safe, right? So write a message and place it in the locked safe. So first, the verifier writes a secret message and puts it in the locked safe. The prover who fulfills the requirements has knowledge of the combination code and opens the locked safe, right? So they have actual you know, proof, you know, to say it says it says they fulfill the requirements and have knowledge of the combination code. So they have the knowledge of the combination code, right? It says the prover returns the secret message to the verifier, right? I repeat, the prover returns the secret message to the verifier. And then the verifier is convinced that the prover really knows the combination code and can therefore be trusted, right? And the, the prover and the verifier didn't really need to know anything about each other, right? And that's the whole point of zero knowledge proofs. So we can do, again, another uh, example here. This is opaque pricing. So in this example, you and a competitor discover that you are buying the same materials from the same supplier. You want to find out if you are paying the same price per kilogram, right? However, there isn't any enough uh, trust between the both of you to divulge the prices you are each paying. And you are also contractually bound to not share this information, assuming the market rate for the materials can only be 100, 200, 300, and 400 per kilogram. We can set up a zero knowledge proof for this situation. Let's follow these steps, explain the idea. So you have you and the competitor, and you and the competitor want to know if you're paying the same price without revealing how much each of you are actually paying. So we obtained four lockable lock boxes, each with a small slot that can take only a piece of paper. They're all labeled 100, 200, 300, and 400 for the price per kilogram and placed in a secure private room, right? So it goes on to read, it says, you go into the room and alone first, since you're paying 200 per kilogram, you take the key from the lock box that is labeled 200 and destroy the keys for the other boxes You leave the room, right? And then, the competitor goes into the room alone with four pieces of paper, one with a check and three with crosses, right? Because your competitor is paying 300 kilograms, they slide the paper with a check inside the lockbox that is labeled 300 and slide the papers with the crosses into the other lockboxes. They leave the room. So after they leave, you can return with your key that can only open the lockbox labeled 200, right? And you can find a piece of paper with the cross on it. So now you know your competitor is not paying the same price as you because when you open up the box, the slip that he put in was an X and it wasn't a check because he had 300 kilograms and you had 200 kilograms, right? So that's basically how you sum it up. And that's another way to identify zero knowledge proofs. And so both of you are leaving knowing only that you are not paying the same amount, but neither of you actually know no knowledge was gained of each other on what each other was paying, right? So that's the entire point. And so the article goes on to read, it says zero knowledge proofs and protocols are not magic, but they are an exciting frontier of blockchain technology. They have an immense potential in a wide variety of applications where sensitive information is required, such as providing proof of password, proof of identity, and proof of membership, right? So imagine you can show proof of all these things without having to give up personal identifying information, right? You have cryptocurrencies like Zcash, Monero, and they make use of ZKPs to maintain high level of user and transaction privacy for, for their users, right? And it says, while companies like Nuggets and Mina also 
use ZKPs that allow users to identify themselves with verified real-world information that does not compromise their personal data. And it goes on to talk about even ING Bank has implemented the use of ZKPs allowing their clients to provide proofs such as providing the amount in their bank account without revealing the amount in their mortgage application or proving that they live in an EU country without revealing the country. Interesting, right? It says, by understanding how zero-knowledge proofs work, you can allow authentication with untrusted or unidentified parties over an untrusted communication channel. There are a, a fundamental tool in cryptography that can be used to prove, to prove other uh, properties about data, making it versatile and exciting tool for traceability and privacy in complex supply chains, paving the way for secure or secular or circular e economy to become mainstream, right? So very, very interesting article, right? And this article was, let me just scroll up to see and give the credit, was from Tian Daphne, right? And so she wrote this article. And yeah, so that's basically the sum up what zero knowledge proofs are. It's very, very nuanced. And I think it could be a way to alleviate us always having to, to have our password and always having to share all our personal identifying information to verify ourselves without actually having to show our personal identifying information the same way. And so anyways, guys, I know this was a lot of information. It was highly technical podcast. I will be getting back or hopefully I'll be getting back to something more lighthearted in the future for the podcast and so on. But anyways, I hope you guys were didn't fall asleep during this one. I hope you guys enjoyed this one and I'll see you guys in the next pod, man. And peace. Thank you.